1: Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein.
2: Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another segment of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, Over the course of our series of broadcasts, and we've been on the air for over two years now, Um, We have done a number of polls and a number of surveys on what the listenership is actually interested in. And as many of you know, we are trying to generate, and we have succeeded actually, in generating quite a large audience, not just among the professional archaeology community, but at the public at large. And one of our findings in the course of doing periodic surveys is some of the classic topics that one would normally associate with archaeology the sort of sexy type of Indiana Jones like archaeology if you will are topics that one would expect to be very exciting and and which would draw a large listenership and we're talking about things like human origins the evolution of early civilizations and um... Uh, and for for people who live in north america and the new world um, the maya the aztec the cultures of the american southwest and uh, that was expected one of the items that was not quite as expected in terms of popularity is uh... archaeology of cold climates and specifically the vikings it turns out that one of our earlier viking shows was the highest rated program in in our sequence of prog- of broadcasts and in conjunction with that we are trying to follow follow up on this very very exciting field and my guest for today's program dr. Julian Richards is one of the pioneers in uh, Norse research and he will be talking about uh, the Vikings with respect to the United Kingdom and England and it's a topic that has not really garnered that much um, hoopla, if you will, but has certainly come to the forefront in professional archaeological circles. So um, let me um, give you a little bit of background on Dr. Julian Richards. He uh, is the director of the the Archaeology Data Service and the co-director of the e-journal Internet Archaeology. He is um, at the University of York in the UK. His involvement has actually uh, been very strongly based on archaeological computing and he did his phd research looking at pre-christian anglo-saxon burial ritual in 1985 he co-authored the first textbook in archaeological computing for uh... cambridge press and he has subsequently written numerous papers and edited a number of books on the applications of information technology and archaeology as well as anglo-saxon and viking archaeology uh... dr richards is the director of york's center for digital heritage and uh from October to 2013 on which is now he is, uh, he is the founding director of the White Rose College of the Arts and Humanities. Uh Julian it's my pleasure to introduce you here. Thanks so much for appearing on the show. Hello Joe, pleased to be on the show. Julian, give me a little background here. How uh how did you get into Viking archaeology? Uh, in the in the first place, and is there any connection between that and your interests in computing and computer archaeology as well?
3: Well, indirectly there is, yeah, because so it's, I got into uh, computers uh, through trying to study early medieval uh, burial rituals. I was trying to uh, study thousands of uh, early medieval burials, and the only way to uh, manage that quantity of data was with uh, computers. But I first got into uh, Vikings, actually, uh, when I came to York as a student to work on the excavations here at, um, at uh, a site called Coppergate, uh, that is one of the most famous Viking sites in uh, certainly in the British Isles, and it changed our impression of, of Vikings uh, as just being raiders because it showed us a side of them uh, where they were important trading traders as well, and so that was very exciting. So. Uh, I dug on the the site there as a a student, uh, stayed on after I graduated for about a year. And then eventually, when I was fortunate enough to get a university post, I ended up uh, lecturing on Vikings and uh, eventually I've been fortunate to excavate a number of, uh, of Viking sites. So, Julian, let
2: me uh, get into Vikings and, and the UK in particular, because we had Tom McGovern on uh, several months ago, and we were talking, obviously, about the Vikings and the uh, the settlement of, of uh, actually North America and their earliest forays into North America, which is a topic that is not widely known, but is certainly getting a lot of publicity now. What about the connection between the, Nor- the traditionally conceived Norse Vikings and the Viking uh, presence in the UK and uh, when did the excavations at Coppergate and related sites in the UK take off?
3: Okay, well, uh, there's sort of two two uh, questions there. The, um, the Vikings um, uh, were raiding in uh, Europe long before they set off exploring across the North Atlantic and, as you say, eventually uh, uh, made their way to uh, Newfoundland. Uh, so, the earliest Viking raids in um, Europe are probably round about 800. We have sort of documentary sources that uh, place these in the 780s and 790s, although though there may have been earlier raids than that. And they sort of go on really for a period of about um, well 300 uh, years almost, uh, but changing in character over that time from initial sort of coastal exploratory raiding, just grabbing going for monastic sites along the coast and then taking that back to Scandinavia. And then over time, they start to come across with larger armies. They overwinter. Uh, they eventually set up towns or help to establish towns um, in uh, various European places, including the UK. And we started to learn about those uh, towns, such as uh, York, really through urban excavations from the 1970s. Uh, onwards, um, but I've been particularly interested in them, uh, their rural settlements, but also going back to the role of some of the of the Viking army as as well, which I uh, want to talk to you about.
2: So, um, basically, they started out, uh, you know, just to to boil it down to some basics, these were raiding parties that were expanding out of the Norse heartland and just sort of exploring the uh, northern Europe, if you will, and uh, when did that start, did you say, that in, in, in right, the UK late, specifically?
3: Yeah, yeah, the UK specifically, uh, very late 8th century, sort of 790s, um, and then... Uh, starts to increase in, in tempo as we get into the 9th century. Uh, they start sort of overwintering in England from about the 830s and then they start uh, to uh, see, the raids start to change in character again and they start to uh, seize land uh, from round about the uh, 860s, 870s uh, onwards. Uh, and then there's a bit of a, a, a lull in the later uh, well, the early uh, 10th century, and then they come back with much larger armies, really bent on political conquest, sort of culminating really with uh, William the Conqueror, who, William the Norman, who was a, a, ultimately a Viking. If We trace his ancestry back in, wow. uh, in the famous Battle of Hastings, 1066,
2: 1066, people, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: And for many people, that is the end of the of the Viking age uh, for the British Isles, at least.
2: So this is sort of a punctuated, if you will, uh, series of explorations. When you say raiding parties, was this really exploratory? And and how were the first encounters with indigenous uh, people in in the UK? How how did that go? And how sustained was that uh, settlement or occupation in the early years?
3: Yeah, okay. So initially, uh, the the contacts are pretty violent. One of the first accounts we uh, have... Uh, Of course, all these accounts are written from the point of view of the Anglo-Saxons who were on the receiving end of that. So we have to bear that in in mind that there may be an element of propaganda uh, here. Just the the Vikings didn't themselves produce written sources at this date. Uh, But one of the first accounts is of a Viking raiding party that lands on the uh, south coast of uh, England at uh, a place called Portland Bill, where we're told that the King's Reeve, who would have been the King's representative, who was normally his job would have been to go out and um, meet traders or so forth to make sure that they were going to pay their tax. And we're told that they set upon him and kill him, which probably wasn't the outcome he was uh, expecting. (laughs) Um, And uh, then we're told of a raid... In the late in the seven nineties, on a famous monastery at Lindisfarne, off the northeast coast of England, and uh, Alcuin, who is actually writing probably from Germany at the time, so he's he may not be um, in full possession of the facts, but uh, he is horrified uh, by this event uh, and says that never before have we uh, seen such sort of horrendous. Uh, events of, of these Vikings setting upon God's Church and putting it to the to the to fire and to the sword, um, but uh, yeah, as as I say, these early raids are pretty sporadic. Um, it seems as if they're sort of probing, really motivated by uh, sources of silver, uh, and then the raids start to develop. Um, into more sustained campaigns, probably larger numbers. We think the initial raids were probably just one or two or, or, or three ships, but then we suspect that the um, they come back with much more substantial uh, forces in the uh, in the mid ninth century.
2: Is there any archaeological evidence of their presence in the early years? Ships, uh, artifact
3: sets associated with the Norse uh, Vikings no the 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 problem with sort of raiding activity is that it's it's quite difficult archeologically to um find clear evidence for it so the evidence for the early raids is uh, a lot of it comes from some historical sources but what we do find are is indirect evidence in the in the form of hordes of uh coins uh, which we suspect in many cases may have been buried Uh, to protect them from raiders. And what we also find is um, Anglo-Saxon and Irish metalwork finding its way back to Scandinavia, and we suspect that a lot of that is as a result of loot uh, of uh, English and Irish monasteries.
2: So a lot of the data is actually from transport from the UK back to the Norse heartland, if you will. That's right. It's a sort
3: of movement of, uh, of items. I mean, we, we, we do have some knowledge of, of Viking ships of this period, but that's largely from Scandinavia. We don't have any examples uh, from the British Isles. And what about the documentary
2: evidence? What, is the, what are the primary sources for that?
3: Well, one of the best sources for England is an early document called the, uh, which goes by the name of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, and we suspect that it was sort of first started being set down at the uh, command of, of King Alfred, one of the famous early of Anglo-Saxon kings of, of, of Wessex. So it was probably actually written down, although there are various manuscripts, we, we think it was set down first in his court, possibly in Winchester in, in southern England. Uh, and it really it's just a... a, a an annual account of some of the key events of that uh, year. Um, uh, sometimes you get a, a longer entries, uh, but often it's a very brief entry that just says, "Well, in for example, in this year there was a, a, a Viking raid at such and such a a place." Um, and doesn't really tell us much more about it. It may say that, that this year 30 ships of the Vikings uh, uh, sailed up the, uh, the Thames or uh, accounts like that. So again, it's from uh, people on the receiving end of the, of the raids. But it's an important uh, historical uh, document. We're going to take a brief break and
2: we will return to our very fascinating discussion with Dr. Julian Richards on the Viking presence in the UK. We'll be back after these.
4: Ask the experts. Call toll free right now. 1 866 472 5787. And ask our All Star team to answer your questions. That's 1 472 5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com.
5: Adoption changes a family forever. For the adopters as well as the adoptees, there are many adjustments that need to be made, from lifestyle to financial. And the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want to help make our world a better place but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety.
4: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk.
1: Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you do-
2: This is Joe Schildenrein, and we're back with a special episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are talking about the Viking presence in the UK. Uh, As I had mentioned earlier, uh, one of the more popular programs that we have had is on the dispersals of the Vikings in the Norse cultures uh, to the New World and uh, into Northern Europe as well. And today's guest, Dr. Julian Richards, is an expert on the archeology span of the Norse presence and the Viking presence in the UK. And we have been talking about the early exploratory raids by the Viking armies across the sea into the UK, and as Julian had explained, the initial Uh, forays of the Vikings into the UK were exploratory. There were small raiding parties. They had gone up and down the coast. But as he had indicated, there was a second wave, if you will. And Julian, why don't you continue with the chronology of, uh, let's call it for lack of a better term, the second wave, and uh, we will talk about some of your excavations and some of the research that you've done. So what is the background to the second phase?
3: Okay, well, we're... Told in the Anglo-Saxon uh, chronicle that um, in uh, 865 A.D. there is a, a force which is described as the as the Great Army, or in Old English, the Mickle Hera, Hera being the 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 Anglo-Saxon word for army, and and Mickle is is great um, in, in, in 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 Old English, um, and this. Army lands in East Anglia, where we're told that it it uh, gets horses, um, it, it grabs horses, and it moves around uh, England as a then as a highly mobile uh, force. Really seems to be exploiting uh, weaknesses uh, amongst the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms at the time. Because so England is made up of a number of kingdoms: Northumbria, East Anglia, uh, uh, Mercia, and Wessex. Um, and so we're told then in 866 6 to seven, it's raiding York. So it's already travelled up to the north of of England. It, it besieges uh, York. Uh, it results in in uh, killing the uh, couple of the uh, Anglo-Saxon, the Northumbrian Anglo-Saxon kings. And then it moves uh, down into the Midlands to Nottingham. The following year, 868 8 to nine, it's back up to York. Then in uh, 870 to one. Uh, to East Anglia again to Thetford, 871 to 2 down to London and then what I'm particularly interested in in 872 to 3 we're told that um a win- uh, Zahara Winter settle at Toxe uh, which roughly translated means uh, in in this year the the uh, the army took winter quarters or made a winter camp at at um, and this is generally uh, been recognized as relating to a, uh, a what's now just a small village in lincolnshire uh, which goes by the name of talksey um, uh, the place name probably means uh, we think turks island so talk is is, is turk uh, and z or s e y uh, means island or at least a, a, a place surrounded by uh, water
2: right as it is in most of the northern european languages that's correct. And so I, I'm assuming that at this point we're already starting to get a significant archaeological record that has diagnostic artifacts or has evidence of the occupation?
3: Well, it's, that's an interesting point because uh, we, we get lots of hordes appearing, but up till re- relatively recently we've not really had uh, evidence for these winter camps as, as such um and we've not really known what they looked like and indeed we didn't know although we knew there was the link with this place named talksy we didn't know where the winter camp was at Torxy. there's been one other um excavation that was carried out in the uh, uh, 1970s uh, onwards at a uh, at a uh, another Midland site at repton uh, which is actually where the viking great army overwintered in the following year in 873 to 4 and there, uh, Professor Martin Biddle did some excavations, and he believed he'd found a large uh, a D-shaped enclosure set against uh, a riverbank. Uh, and he thought that was the, referred to the winter camp of the, uh, of the Great Army. And he also found a number of Viking uh, graves there. Uh, but we didn't know where the winter camp uh, was at Torxey until uh, were relatively recently.
2: So uh, did the major, the excavations, let's just talk in general terms, the uh, primary excavations uh, of the Norse or the Vikings in the UK, did they really sort of begin in the
3: 1970s? Uh, yes, re- really they they did both on um, a few, on urban sites, such as we mentioned in, in York and then in some other uh, towns where uh, the Vikings have been seen to have a great influence um, and also one or two rural sites as uh, as well where there, we think there were uh, Viking farmsteads. Um, but uh, given the all the historical sources and all the place names that we have, which seem to suggest Viking settlement, it's been one of the puzzles um, that the, the Vikings have left relatively uh, little archaeological evidence in. Uh, England, even though we have this uh, name the Dane law for the area that they they settled, the area that uh, became under the Danish law. Um, Within the Dane law, we have lots of Viking place names, but we've not had much archaeological evidence until uh, the uh, excavations from the 1970s onwards. That's correct.
2: So tell us about the 1970s excavations and what emerges in the archaeological r- record that is distinctively Viking-like, and certainly you've done a lot of work on this, and, and how did you read the archaeological record as you were proceeding to do the excavations?
3: Okay, well, let's, let's talk a little bit first about uh, some of the of the towns, and, and I'll talk particularly about uh, York. Um, uh, York had been an important Anglo-Saxon trading site. It, it went under the Anglo-Saxon name of Yoffawik, of and it clearly was a at the confluence of the River Zoos and, and Foss. There was quite an important trading settlement with continental merchants, Frisians and so forth, who were uh, importing wine, we we know, probably uh, other exotic items as, as well, uh, into York. And this was sort of being... Uh, Probably controlled by the Anglo-Saxon kings Uh, but then what we see and and Coppergate is one of the best uh, uh, examples of of this is um, that when the the North come there is a disruption of those initial trading sites and a a gap in in for a few years and then on Coppergate we see from the 880s onwards uh, the establishment of regular trading uh, plots um, and initially wattle built uh, rectangular houses um, where there's evidence for a whole variety of craft working going on uh, some of it is jewelry making in uh, glass beads and amber beads uh, as well as metal working creating um, lots of uh, uh, decorative metalwork a lot of it is actually what we call costume jewelry it's really quite junk jewelry but in a scandinavian art style or sometimes with a, a hybrid art style which mingles a sort of anglo-saxon form of brooch maybe with um uh, scandinavian decoration so sort of dragons and and so forth punched onto onto this and this seems to be a, a dress fashion that gains in popularity Uh, from the uh, the ninth century onwards and you can imagine the sort of um, anglo-saxon farmers wise coming into the markets in in york and uh, acquiring this jewelry acquiring what we call call really an anglo-scandinavian culture so you can imagine york at the time was quite a bustling uh, metropolis merchants probably from uh, from all over uh, manufacturing going on it's certainly the picture from the the York-Coppergate excavations is a very noisy, dirty, uh, smelly place. Right. Uh, um, so that's, is, it. gives us a picture of a sort of contribution of Scandinavian merchants to the development of urbanism uh, in uh, England, certainly. Uh, they didn't invent it, but they were certainly a, a, a catalyst uh, to the development of towns. So,
2: are we seeing a, an integration of any sort, or a cross-cultural convergence, a little bit between the uh, the Norse settlers and and the Anglo Saxons?
3: Yes, a, lo- a lot of integ- integration and a lot of uh, examples of a sort of hybrid uh, type cultures I- emerging. I've given you one example with the jewelry. There are other good examples, for example, in uh, sculpture, um, where. Um, the, the Anglo-Saxons, the Christian Anglo-Saxons, had uh, uh, erected stone preaching uh, crosses. Um, but then when the, when the Norse uh, settle in England, they start uh, erecting uh, crosses as what we think are uh, grave memorials to uh, Lord, early Sc- Anglo-Scandinavian lords. Um, and there's a famous one near York which depicts a, a, a figure, apparently a, a warrior, known as a Middleton warrior, uh, with a helmet, uh, a sword, uh, a shield, uh, a small knife, a, a, a scrammer And he's sort of <coughs> apparently sitting there in, in, in state uh, and as a reflection of an early Anglo-Scandinavian lord who's a new landowner. He's probably dispossessed. An Anglo-Saxon lord or has broken up a, a pre-existing large Anglo-Saxon estate that may have been owned by the the crown and um, and this is what we also then see in the countryside is a sort of privatization almost of of land ownership as, as uh, the north start to settle and take over land. Um, so both in jewellery and, and in uh, sculpture and other, for, other uh, forms we start to see a development of a hybrid Culture and generally, as we go into the um, later 9th century, we see the emergence of uh, hybrid culture, and um, the 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 seem to be very good at at, at adopting uh, to local uh, situations. Uh, they very rapidly appear to to become Christianized and give up pagan burial, um, and okay. probably then just uh, buried in churchyards as the Anglo Saxons would have been. And we'll be back with uh, Julian Richards after these
2: words. News. 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 Opinion.
4: Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit.
1: is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety.
4: Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life Goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening.
2: This is Joe Schildenrein, and we're back with a very special and fascinating episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are talking about the uh, not widely known settlement of the Norse and the Viking culture in the east of England and in in the northern sectors of the UK. One of the uh, prominent archaeologists who has worked on that particular issue is Dr. Julian Richards, and uh, we were talking about sort of the hybridization of cultures, the imposition in the sense of the Norse culture into the Anglo-Saxon heartland and the incorporation of a lot of cultural elements of the Norse culture into the actual uh, Anglo-Saxon civilization and probably into the adaptive strategies and to the organization of uh, of urban communities in um, in the UK, Julian, why don't you tell us a little bit more about how extensive that influence was, and did it actually affect uh, settlement patterns and uh, the geography of the Norse uh, distribution in the UK? Uh,
3: yes, I mean, I mean the the, the settlement uh, areas. With thinking, well, the, the main sources for uh, drawing a map, as it were, of, of Viking England have been. Uh, traditionally, was the was the place name uh, evidence, and uh, this largely comes from names of, of uh, English villagers. Now, the problem here is that these are first recorded in the Doomsday uh, book in the 1080s, so they are later than the period of this uh, first settlement that we're talking about right. in the ninth century. But in for much of eastern England, um, around Yorkshire, Lincolnshire, and East Anglia, we get a preponderance of village names. That have a Scandinavian element, so place names ending in in b y such as near York there's a little village called haxby um, mm-hmm. b y is the uh, the Norse name for uh, word for a village it gives us our name the the, the word the bylaw, the law of the village um, and we also get names uh, such as Thorpe, which is also a Scandinavian influenced place name and then round York we have uh, Bishop Thorpe and Middlethorpe, so these are all thought thought to be. Uh, Scandinavian influence place names. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was uh, Vikings who settled there, but it, it uh, and it doesn't mean that um, this is the first time that those sites were occupied. It may be a renaming of existing sites, largely for taxation purposes, uh, in in Doomsday uh, book. But it's significant that they are given given Scandinavian names. So that was our uh, evidence for a, for a long time. But what's changed? Uh, that, or added to it really is um, the, the fact that we're now starting to uh, log a lot of the finds that metal detector users are making in uh, in England uh, in particular uh, because over the years they're, they've developed a far more extensive knowledge of where all of these Viking uh, settlements are than the archaeologists because a lot of their sites leave very <coughs> little evidence um, on the surface of the ground, in terms of the rural settlements, this is, uh, you may just be looking at a at a blank field with a crop on it. Uh, but every year these fields are ploughed and every year the detectorists uh, go out and they've been retrieving large quantities of coins, a lot of this costume jewellery that I was talking about before that's probably manufactured in the towns or imported, but spreads into the countryside. So brooches and uh, little strap ends, uh, that you'd have on the end of your your belt um, decorated in a uh, anglo scandinavian style, and this has now been found over much of of eastern England and seems to represent probably a much larger uh, settlement than we uh, had thought was uh, likely it's not just at the sort of uh, the elite end of population it's not just the uh, uh, the new lord the new landlords it's representing a a, a peasant and it's representing Scandinavian women as well, uh, potentially coming over in the wake of the of the of the armies.
2: So uh, you're starting. So you're starting to get sort of a uh, an element of uh, that will identify the geography of the hinterlands in a sense, in which the uh, the Norse fanned out and this hybrid culture sort of uh, was disseminated across a pretty extensive terrain. Uh, uh,
3: that's right, and it's. Um, it does actually quite well correspond to um uh, the demarcation which uh, uh, comes from a treaty which uh, king alfred made with the the danish warrior leader guthrum uh, mm-hmm. and set out a, a, a it was a treaty called the treaty of 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 wedmore um uh, that was made in the late 870s and this Demarcated an area to the south and west of that that would remain under King Alfred's control, the Kingdom of Wessex, an area and an area to the northeast of of that uh, that was under the control of the Vikings. And that later in later sources, that's referred to the Danelaw, the area of the of the Danish law, um, and it covers uh, most of Yorkshire, most of Lincolnshire, East Anglia, uh, quite a bit of the Midlands as as well. And then in later years, we also. See- Scandinavian uh, influence in uh, northwestern uh, England. Possibly this is a secondary migration that comes from uh, Ireland in the uh, early 10th century. But the the area of the Lake District um, and Cumbria also has a lot of Scandinavian influence. So uh, in terms of just the settlement geography,
2: uh, are they tending to settle in areas that are familiar to them from their home countries? Because because uh, the geography of the UK is is obviously a little different from that yeah. of the Norse heartland, but they tend to move into lake areas that 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 have water and and, and and the types of geographic features that are familiar to them, because that's that's a pattern everywhere for migrations.
3: Yeah. Well, there's a, that's an interesting question. There may be an element of of that. I mean we we know that the uh, the viking armies and the ba- viking settlers were drawn from a number of the Scandinavian uh, countries from Denmark, uh, Sweden and Norway. And of course those countries have a very varied geography and the geography of of right. of, of De- and the topography of Denmark is actually quite similar to uh, lowland England. Yeah. Uh, I mean Jutland for example is uh, is fairly flat. Uh, nowhere's very far from 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 water. Uh, it's not so different from East Anglia and areas of, of Lincolnshire, um, whereas uh, Norway, obviously, uh, is much more mountainous, lots of, of, of fields and so forth. And that certainly has similarities uh, with uh, the northwest of, of England, the, the Lake District area. Um, right. it may be that that, that um, there is a, a regional preferences according to. Uh, uh, where some of the uh, settlers came from, but they'd also be, it's important not to forget that this army, uh, these armies had been travelling around a lot and raiding different parts of Europe. They'd not necessarily come straight from Scandinavia. They right. uh, may have come from from France and so forth and been on the move for a long time and may have picked up uh, uh, local warriors, which may uh, not have uh, n- not come from Scandinavia at all. Right. How far how far north did they extend? Did they go into Scotland? Uh yes, they did, although we, we um we don't really have historical sources for Scotland, but we do have quite a number of Viking graves, particularly um in the Northern and Western Isles, in the in uh, Shetland and, and Orkney and in the Hebrides as well, and and settlement evidence. Uh and there we think the the, the Norse the Nor the Norwegians were probably particularly important and it's probably those groups that then leapfrogged across the uh, the North Atlantic, going sort of to uh, to Iceland, to the Faroes, and ultimately uh, to Greenland and to uh, Newfoundland. Right.
2: You anticipated my question. That's what I was saying. They were going to, be going to. They would be perfect candidates to go into Shetland and and from there to points west and and west and north, in fact, and and to move into that area. Exactly. And uh, they, you mentioned before that they did not get into Wales. Um, geography, but, what was that? Uh, well, yeah,
3: there, there, there's some coast evidence along the coast in uh, around Wales uh, for some limited raiding, possibly one or two settlements, but um, very little evidence from uh, central Wales uh, for any Viking activity. It could be that um, because of the, the present-day geography, uh, it's more difficult to, to find. But I think probably the, the general picture is, yeah, but much less Viking settlement in in, in Wales.
2: And uh, do we have any information as to what the chronology was for the Western settlement? In, was it much later into, say, Shetland and then taking off into Greenland and places like that?
3: Yeah, the, the probably I uh, the the chronology is more uh, difficult because of the um well not so many coins and also uh, right. the, the the shortage of historical uh, sources but yeah probably we we're, we're talking sort of 900 and then into a 1000 a, a, a for the year 1000 for um a settlement in Iceland and and so forth yeah and I, I guess one of the interesting elements of this,
2: and I want to get into this with you, is uh, w- how much excavation is there right now on Viking settlements in the U.K.? Uh, and and is, are, those, are those programs largely U.K.-based, or are there interchanges between Scandinavian-based archaeological teams and folks in the U.K.? How is that working?
3: Yeah there are, there are one or two uh, projects there's not there's not it has to be said there's not many big viking excavations going on at the moment there are one or two research projects which i think some of which are collaborations with a number of universities including scandinavian universities in um uh, Shetland and, uh, and Orkney um less so in in England at the moment and uh, because there's um not been very many big ex- urban excavations of the, the recent years there's um, uh, not been so much work as, as there was in the, in the 70s and 80s uh-huh. Okay,
2: we will be back with our very special guest, Dr. Julian Richards of York University after these words
4: stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts VoiceAmerica.com. all around the outermost rim of the shield he set the mighty stream of the river oceanus creating achilles shield in homer's the iliad book 18
1: rachel carson in the sea around us said all at last return to the sea Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel.
4: Hi, I'm Joe Swedish, CEO of Wellpoint.
0: Spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. V.A. Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. The Internet's number
4: one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and Twenty First Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. That's one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now back to the program. Can you do-
2: we're back. This is Joe Schildenrein with a special segment of Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. As I indicated earlier, one of the greater fascinating topics that listenership has pointed up is the entire question of the Norse and the uh, w- what's emerging as a much m- wider pale of settlement, if you will, of the Norse and the Scandinavian populations disseminating out to the West and into Northern Europe into the UK and ultimately into the New World as well. Uh, The imprint of the Norse invasions and in the Norse occupations and settlement into the UK is something that is not widely known. I, I, people in Europe, I think, are probably much more familiar with it than, uh, than those in North America. But one of the uh, premier scholars in this domain is Dr. Julian Richards, and he has excavated a number of sites, the most prominent, which are, are Toxey and Coppergate. And uh, Julian, why don't you tell us a little bit about the excavation itself at Toxey?
3: Right. Well, it's early days for the excavation. And this is a collaborative project between the University of York and the University of Sheffield uh, with Professor Dawn Hadley and also the British Museum, um, as well as a number of other uh, collaborators. And it's a very exciting uh, site because uh, I think I mentioned earlier, we know from the historical sources that we're told that the Viking Great Army overwintered there. But we've never really known where their winter camp was and it was uh, uh, the late Mark Blackburn, a numismatist at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, who started logging finds which had been recovered by metal detector users from uh, a number of fields to the north of the present day uh, village, uh, fields which are adjacent to the River Trent, uh, mm-hmm. which is navigable at this point. It joins uh, a Roman uh, canal, the Foss Dyke, which links the Trent to right. Lincoln. So, an important uh, transport. Uh, route, probably quite a strategic uh, point as well. And the finds that he started logging were exceptionally rich because they included, uh, well, uh, up to 300 Anglo-Saxon coins, uh, over 100 Arabic coins. These are what are called dirhams. These were mostly cut up as uh, bullion also a number of pieces of what we call hack silver, these are sort of ingots where silver has been uh, melted down and then turned into ingots, uh, but also includes bits of silver jewellery cut up, uh, oh. even some hack gold, uh, some uh, eight pieces of of gold, including a, a piece of fake uh, uh, gold with some copper that had been plated as, as gold. Um, uh, but a a very rich uh, assemblage which we've now sort of by working with the metal detectorists we're sort of we have now getting them to plot all their finds and we've isolated a, an area which is actually a very large area it's uh some over 20 hectares um uh six very large fields and suggests that uh the Viking there was Viking activity over quite a large area, but what's particularly interesting is looking at the dates of these finds. We can actually narrow down the occupation from the coins that we've got to a single, virtually to a single year to 872 to 3. So this is very rare in archaeology. It's a bit of like course, yeah. it's a bit like Pompeii in the sense that we've right. got a finds assemblage that relates to a snapshot, a single period of time. Uh, and a wealth of finds that just relate to this single episode in history.
2: What do you? What can you tell us about the organization in the site? What's it telling us about social organization, architecture, uh, economic activity?
3: Well, it's yeah, it's very interesting. It's it's early days for the project. We've only done some exploratory uh, work so far. A lot of geophysics survey, uh, some. Uh, uh, soil science. Uh, so they're trying to understand the topography of the of the site at the at the time because it's a landscape that's probably changed quite a lot. Well, of course, uh, yeah. Since, since the Viking period, um, but what we found, what is particularly uh, interesting, is is that actually it was relying on natural defences. There's although it's called a winter camp, uh, mm. there are no there was no bank and ditch. But it was probably fairly strategically. Uh, defensive anyway, because there's a high cliff on one side uh, against the, the the floodplain of the River Trent, marshy land surrounding on, on the other. So, as its place name suggests, it was right. an island to all intents and purposes. So, it didn't really need a bank and ditch. So, it's rather different from the site I mentioned earlier at Repton, where Martin Bill believed he'd got this D-shaped enclosure. But that's also significantly smaller than the the, the talk side. It's about one point four two. Uh, hectares enclosed without enclosure, where, as I say, we're over twenty hectares um, what we we've found so far the geophysics survey suggests that there may be lots of pits, lots of workshops um, uh, but these from our trial trench excavations may well be quite deeply buried uh, because we 've got several meters of wind blown sand. Uh, uh, which sits over a lot of the the site. There are sort of shifting dunes, and every time the farmers plough their fields, uh, these, this, their fields move around uh, somewhat, so they tend not to plough them until they're ready to plant. Um, but it does mean, we hope, that there may be a lot of buried archaeology uh, under these sort of one to two metres of blown sand. Um, so we're uh, aiming to do a much larger open area excavation, which may reveal... Um, some uh, structural evidence workshops and, uh, and so forth. Um, but the, the finds tell us about a range of, of, of activities. They tell us about a Viking army at play. Uh, there are hundreds of uh, gaming pieces um, from probably from the that the, the, we know of a Norse game called Nefertafel, uh, not so dissimilar from uh, the, the game of, of, of chess in some ways. It's sort of a strategy game with pieces that uh-huh. you, you move across a board. And we find these uh, lead gaming pieces from many sets. Um, so that's one of the things we're doing. We're also finding uh, uh, fishing hooks. Uh, so they were certainly a- exploiting the riverine resources adjacent uh, to the site. We find needles as well. We suspect they were probably repairing their ships. But uh, one of the things we, we need to look for, because the metal detectorists have focused on the, on the gold, the silver, the copper alloy. But we need to look for iron clenched nails, the rivets that uh, would have uh, held ships planking uh, together. So I'm sure they would have been doing repairs there. We know from uh, a Viking site in in Ireland at Woodstown, uh, where they have done a full survey for iron objects as well. There were lots of, uh, of ship rivets there.
2: And how long are you projecting to be working on the site?
3: Well, we're just coming to the end of our reconnaissance uh, Phase and funding permitting, we're uh, hoping to carry on for probably another five years with a, a major uh, excavation. And this is being funded by? Well, so far it's been uh, funded by the Universities of Sheffield and York and the Society of Antiquaries of London, the, the British Academy and the Robert Kiln Trust. So uh, as is often with archaeological projects, you have to uh, bring in money from lots of different sources. Lots
2: of different places. To make it but right. it sounds like this site has the potential to tell us a tremendous amount about the uh, the Norse presence in the UK.
3: Yes, it will be uh, one of the few uh, opportunities to investigate archaeologically uh, one of these winter camp sites of this uh, fabled Viking great army.
2: And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to close the program. Julian, thank you so much for being part of our program today. And uh, we're very excited to follow up on your work and hopefully we'll be able to have you on in a future episode so that we can uh, continue to look at this very, very fascinating topic.
3: Thanks very much. Joe, thank you very much. That's my my pleasure. Can I just uh, add that we've just been nominated for Current Archaeology's Research Project of the Year? And if your listeners would like to go online on the Current Archaeology site and vote for us, that would be very welcome. And we will include that in one of our blogs as well. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, Jeff.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future
0: and a better tomorrow.